You are the house. You are the house that God built for David. You are the house that God built for himself. Now to see this in the prophecy that was given to David will take us a few moments. But it's what I want you to go away with on this Merry Christmas. Not how pretty it is in here, although I think it is. Not all the presents at home and all the goods that we have as still amazingly a prosperous people. Amazingly a prosperous people compared to those who've lived through most of history. No, don't take that alone today, but take that you, your body, is the house that God has built for himself by the blood atonement, the blood buying of Jesus Christ. Now the story of David is a long one. We're not going to tell all of it today, but perhaps you remember how at one point God planted this people Israel in this land because of an older promise, a promise to restore us to relationship with him after we broke it by rebellion in our father Adam. He gave a promise back then that there would come one man born of woman, one seed in the line who would bring us back into that Eden, that paradise, that place where we were no longer naked and ashamed and hiding from God and all manner of our own material works, covering ourselves with leaves and whatever else. Because of that promise, he brought a people descended from a man, Abraham, to whom the promise came again out of the land of Egypt and planted them in a place where he said, that's where it's going to happen. And then he put over them, because they asked for it, a king. So they could be like the other peoples around them. They didn't like being different. They didn't like sticking out. They didn't like it when people looked down their nose at them. They wanted to be like others. So they asked for a king. I'll give you a king. Here's one. His name's Saul. He was really tall. Everyone looked at him. Oh, that's a king for sure. That's a king. But Saul didn't have a heart that trusted the promises of God. And so the people under him languished, even though God had promised that no army would ever stand against them. Nobody would ever be able to invade their land and drive them out. And yet it happened again and again and under Saul most of all. Of course, you remember how that greater, taller man, Goliath, beat his shield and said, anybody, come fight me. And Saul cowered in his tent. But then this shepherd boy who had already been chosen by God to replace Saul, he shows up in that tent. And he says, I'll do it. And everyone kind of laughs at him a little bit, but Saul, I don't know. Saul is so afraid, he says, sure, let's send the boy out. And of course, you know how he takes that stone in the sling and he throws it at Goliath. Isn't that amazing? What a great shot David is. But no, 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 don't forget. As Goliath is sitting there again with this giant spear, scoffing at David, saying to him, I'm going to give your body to the ravens to eat. David says, I come against you in the name of Jesus Christ. Now, he didn't have that name revealed. He had Yahweh, Jehovah, but it's the same name. He said, I come against you in the name of Jesus Christ, and I will give your body to the ravens to eat after I cut off your head, which, which he did. Now, that was just the beginning of God overcoming every enemy that came against Israel by the hand of David. 
And this goes on for a while, but where our text picks up in 2 Samuel chapter 7, the first thing it says is that the Lord had given him rest from all his surrounding enemies. He no longer had any threats on his borders. He'd become, begun to become wealthy. And of course, this wealth will continue into the life of his son Solomon. But as a result of his wealth, as a result of conquering the Jebusite stronghold of Jerusalem, this city on a mountain that was very hard to attack at all, David took it by subterfuge. But once he settles there, he begins to build up this fortress. He's getting cedar from Lebanon and builds himself a great palace. And then he, he looks out his window at this beautiful, beautiful, but tent that's sitting over on the higher place, an area that he bought from one of the Jebusites who'd actually converted to Christianity, converted to be one of them. But he bought this little area from him and he's looking at this tent and he goes, look at me. I'm in a, I mean, look at this stuff here, right? I'm in a house, I'm in a house built of this. And my God is in this, this tent of material. Now, of course, Perhaps you remember this tabernacle, this material tent made of not only beautiful purple dyed cloth, but also interwoven with crimson and gold and a bunch of other things. This was according to God's own design. That when Moses and this people were out of Egypt, but at the foot of Mount Sinai, with the fire God up on top and cloud and smoke and deep darkness and shaking and trumpets, God gave Moses a very particular design. He said, make it like this, do it like this, and then I will dwell among you. And once it was all done, when they offered all those bulls and oxen as sacrifice, and they'd taken basins of blood and thrown it on the altar, and then, do you remember, he takes the rest of the blood and he goes among the people and throws it on their faces with a branch. Yeah? After all of that has happened, this God comes down off the mountain and goes into that tent and dwells there. And Moses will go and will speak with him face to face so that his own face shines. So this has been God's design all along. It was the Ark of the Covenant, the box that God put in that tent for himself to sit on, for the blood of atonement to be poured on, that they carried before them whenever they went about, even wandering in the wilderness. But especially after Moses' death, when they finally enter the promised land under the guidance of Joshua, that's the Hebrew name, Jesus, by the way, under the guidance of Joshua. Do you remember how this same ark comes out from the tent and goes into the Jordan River and the Jordan River stops way up further up. It just stops in its tracks. Water just ceases to flow. And so they walk through on dry ground past this ark, holding the waters at bay so they can go from unclean to clean, from lack of promise and wilderness to flowing with milk and honey, from again, curse to Eden, see the pattern, see the type. It's always the same story. That ark and that tent, they go in, and as they go around Jericho seven times, the ark is going around Jericho seven times. Wherever they go to fight, and God is with them according to promise, God is physically with them according to promise, until at last that ark comes to rest at a place called Shiloh. Huh? And perhaps you remember how at one point some faithless people think they can make use of this ark to gain a little extra. These are the sons of uh, Eli. And they take it out to go to war. And the ark is captured by, uh, not the Philistines, excuse me, I'm, it's losing, uh, dropping out of my head the name of the people. But they take him up to their, to their temple. And they put the ark in their temple as a sign of the dominance of their God over the ark. 
And the next morning they find the statue of their God has fallen down. And they put it back up. And it happens again. They put it back up. It happens again. And one day shortly after this, the Israelites in the north are out working in the fields. And they look up and there's the Ark of the Covenant on a, on a trail with two oxen pulling it and no other people. It's come back on its own. Because why? Because God's in the box. God's in the box. He put himself in the box to be found. He put himself in the box for the blood to be put upon the box in atonement. Again, it comes back and it rests again in a different place until finally David says, I want to bring this ark and give it a permanent place in Jerusalem. And even that doesn't work out. Do you remember this? How the first time he brings the ark to Jerusalem, they're going along and the, the priest carrying it with the poles stumble. And a man who's walking along beside puts out his hand to stop it from falling down, which is against the covenant to touch this box at all. And what does he do? He dies. He dies immediately. And David's like, whoa, God's in the box. I don't know. I don't know. I don't know. So he, he puts it to the side and stays in the house of a man again whose name escapes me this morning. But this man is so blessed. He, his whole household is blessed. His wealth just begins to grow that David's like, oh. Maybe I will bring that back up to Jerusalem. And he does. And he brings it in with festivities and dancing. He dances before the Lord. And he's scoffed at by Saul's daughter, Michael. Perhaps remember that. Again, all of this again, that he brings this place where God has said he will dwell up into Jerusalem, the city which eventually is the city of God, the city named for this very same God. But then one day he looks out and he sees, I have all this wealth. I have all this amazing greatness God has given me. I need to make something better than this tent. Even though, again, had God ever asked for this? No, because God was planning to make the tent. It was according to his design from the beginning, and it all had a purpose and a picture to show, indeed, one more time, the same type of the movement from curse to redemption, of the movement from bodies which are perishable and move around in the wilderness to bodies which are established, resurrected, and never to die again. Again, we're almost to that. But first, of course, as you heard, he goes to the prophet Nathan and he says, I want to do this. Good sign. Good sign when the kings in the Old Testament go to the prophet first and say, hey, what does God think? This is what you can do now. Do you know this? Priest, prophet, king, you're all of these in Christ. So what do you do before you go and take action on your own? You commit your way to the Lord. You study the Holy Scriptures. You look into the Psalms and the Proverbs, and you will be inspired by the Holy Spirit to see the way you should go. Go to God first, and then put your hand to the task, and he will bring it to success according to his will. In any case, so this is what David does. And of course, the prophet first says, yes, do this. But then he gets this special vision that very night. and says, wait, 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 wait. I have a teaching point right now. I have a lesson for David to learn. David, what do you think you're going to do for me? I took you from following the sheep. I took you from the pasture. I gave you all of this. What do you think you're going to build for me? And again, if I can zoom us forward here, American Christianity in a time of, yes, still prosperity, but not the kind we're used to, of a time where, yes, still freedom, but not the kind we thought we had, at a time of, yes, life ain't so bad, but then again, it's a bit scary recently, isn't it? The anxiety has built up over the last couple of years, hasn't it? 
so that everything is just a little bit heavier than it used to be. What are we going to do about it? And perhaps some would say, well, we should come and praise God and gain from Him blessing. And I would agree to some extent. We should fall upon our knees and ask our Lord that this tidal wave of lies and deception would pass over us and leave us again a free people, free to worship Him in spirit and truth. But even there then, the the reason to fall on our knees, the reason to bring an offering to this place of sacrifice of praise and prayer, is not because we're going to bring God anything He needs from us, but because we remember that most of all, what God wants is us. Is us. Not our things, but our hearts and our minds freed from the deception, not of just the mainstream media, but of Satan the great demon who is the prince of this planet, the spirit of darkness who rules over men's minds by twisting it to believe that this is all that there is. That what you build here is what is real, as opposed to a a fading flower that will soon burn away and perish. So again, you are the house. That's the goal here to see this. You are what God desires. David, what are you going to give to God? He has already given you everything. And so let me tell you, David, you would build me a house. I'm going to build you a house. And now this promise that was given to Adam and then repeated to Abraham, it comes to David himself, specifically. From your body will come one who will sit on a throne who I will never remove from the throne, ever. Even should he be filled with iniquity, I will merely discipline him with the stripes of men. Of course, the scoffer who can't understand how the prophecies are typological, how they come to pass first in one like Solomon, but then later in Jesus Christ, they can't see how Jesus Christ could be filled with iniquity. How can a prophecy say that? That Jesus Christ would come and be filled with iniquity and then be disciplined with the stripes of men. But remember, On the cross, Jesus of Nazareth is the greatest sinner there ever was. Do you remember this? It's not by his own reason or strength. It's not by the work of his hands that he did. It's because when he stood in that baptism of the man named John, he stood in the path of sinners to fulfill all righteousness by taking the sin on his own shoulders. Saying, yeah, I don't deserve this. I don't deserve it at all. And yet I will take it. I will receive it in order that I might bear it on behalf of everyone else. Now again, going back to David. The promise, I will build you a house, I will give you a son, he will sit on a throne, and his kingdom shall never pass away. This does indeed take place initially under his son Solomon, whose kingdom far surpasses David's kingdom. And did you catch the part about how I will make a name for you, like the great ones of the earth? How many ancient kings do you know by first name? Give me a second to think about it. I just got three right there in my head. How many you got? Yeah? Alexander. Probably heard Alexander. Nebuchadnezzar. Okay. Caesar. Okay. Now what? Oh, good. Cyrus. Very good. Darius. Very good. You're into Persia. That's good. I think you're going beyond the normal. Yeah? But David, David, 
a name which has lasted, a name which is still in use, a name which supersedes even Solomon, his son. Yeah. Notice how truthful God is in these promises. Who is David compared to Alexander? If you look at their ancient kingdoms, they ain't even close. And yet his name continues on. Why? Because of the religion he was given to be part of. And again, because of the house that was built for him, not just in Solomon, whose kingdom did divide and then perish, taken away to Babylon. But who then? That son of David, Joseph, who went to Bethlehem, the city of David, his wife with child, giving birth to one prophesied by angels to be named Joshua Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. This man, Jesus, he is why David's name to this day is known by you and us and the whole world. And this man, Jesus, is the one who then has fulfilled this. Now, again, I will make you the house. Remember how this man, Jesus, having grown in favor with God and man, eventually shows up in the temple that was built for this box of the covenant, although the box was gone. The box was gone by this point, but the temple was still there. They're still trying to have the sacrifices. He shows up in this place and he's teaching and they ask him things like, by what right do you have to say what you say and do what you do? And he says, tear down this temple, pointing at his chest, tear down this house and I'll rebuild it in three days. And they laugh. Took a generation to build this temple. What you talking about? He was talking about his body, the house God built from David for David to inhabit as God, the box. He put himself in the box. Do you see the connection? Only now the box isn't gold. And if you touch it, you don't die. Now the box is human flesh. And when you feast upon it, you live forever. And that's how we can hop forward to see how you're the house. You're the house. Because Jesus did not die and rise to achieve for himself a body just for himself. He died and rose in the place of sinners because Jesus wants sinners to be one with himself and by becoming one with himself to be made purified and clean. That word sin, I've been digging on that a little bit recently. The main word for sin in Hebrew is kata, and it has the same meaning as the main word in Greek, hamartia. It means to miss. To miss. And not just like to miss when you throw something with a sling, although it can mean that too, but particularly to miss the point, to not understand, to not see, to not know who God truly is, what God truly wants. Jesus died and rose so you might know who God truly is, Jesus, and what God truly wants, you. Not what you do, not what you bring, not what you give, but you, your heart awakened to know that this veil of darkness, this shadow which binds the world, not just the last two years, it's been here all along, that it has not overcome the light which was there in the beginning. The eternal son, greater than the angels, who now has made you greater than the angels by binding you to his house, to his body, that temple that he brought back from the other side of the grave, that box that he brought across the streams of death on dry ground with you inside. So that when God builds a house for David, it's not Solomon, it's Jesus and Jesus' blood that going back through history covers David. But more now, 
David's house is not just them, him, and those descended by blood from him according to the flesh, but all who descend by blood from him according to the faith. And again, that's you. Because in just a moment here, you're going to take a cup. It's going to be filled with wine. But it won't just be wine. According to the night in which our Lord was betrayed, the night before he died, the night when he prayed that God would receive his offering and protect those for whom he was going to die and save, he took a cup from a table that was used for the Passover meal, an ancient celebration of knowing that God will save people from the wrath he's bringing upon those who hate him when they turn to him, when they look through his promises, put the blood on the doorpost of what? Of your house. Huh? He took the cup. He said, this is the blood now. Not lambs, not bulls, not goats. And the doorpost of the house, it's your mouth. It's your gullet. It's your stomach. It's your arms and legs and head. It's all of you. And he's going to pour that blood according to his promises, not ceasing to be wine, but also wine. That blood of the covenant is going to go into you with some bread that he swears to you by eternal goodness that is also his body. And so again, you are the house. You are the Christmas present. You are what Jesus wants more than anything else in the entire universe so that you would know again that yea, though you die, yet you will live. All the beauty, all the good gifts under the tree, the many fine things of this age, all the anxiety, and the deception and the lies and the fears, all of it is but a passing moment. But you, the house that God has built from the body of your Savior, Jesus Christ, you are not a passing moment. You are God's, he says. You are an eternal kingdom, he says. Prophets, priests, kings to live and reign with him, under him, in innocence and righteousness, and blessedness, forever and ever. You are the house that God dwells in. In the name of Jesus, amen.